Good morning. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to also talk about uh, this particular subject, this topic, as we are going to go through the scriptures, taking a look at the concept of faith and hopefully be encouraged by that little excursion as we grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an easy but important point to make, and that is faith is important. Uh, It is easy to convince a Christian audience that faith is a big deal. God was so impressed with the idea of faith that he included it very early in the scriptures. And if you wouldn't mind, let's go to Genesis chapter 15 for just a moment, in particular verse 6, because I want us to see how God unfolds this most important doctrine known as faith or to believe. What we see in this little verse is perhaps what many would consider the most important verse in all the Bible, certainly when it comes to the doctrine of justification by faith. For in Genesis 15, 6, we get sort of the formula, if you will, that faith in God results in a right standing before him. We see that Abram believed God and it was reckoned or counted to him as righteousness. Abram's faith in God and what he had revealed at that point resulted in Abraham having a right standing before the Lord. Paul will quote this same verse in Romans 4 and build his whole argument there. And the consistency of this little transaction, faith in God resulting in righteousness, is found throughout the Word of God. And so we see its importance. And so I thought we would take a, just a moment and step back and make sure we get a good handle on what it really means biblically to believe or to have faith. I'm convinced at times we use words so commonly in the Christian life, words like sin and faith and righteousness and glory and grace, all the kind of the God lingo that we might use it so often we don't step back and say, what does that word really mean biblically? And at times I see that we sort of blunt the meaning of those words. And so I thought we'd go back and do a little overview of this particular word, both in the Old and New Testament. Everybody knows at least one Hebrew word, and that is the Hebrew word aman, from which we get our word amen. The word aman is the normal Hebrew word that is translated faith or believe. And what we're going to do is build the concept of that word just a bit, for at its root meaning, it has the idea of that which is so. Literally, aman means it is so. Now, we don't use the word so all that much. Uh, It has the idea if someone was to come to you and present you some information that you might not have heard of before and you're sort of checking that information out, you might say, is that so? And the person would say, yes, that is so. When we say amen, by the way, we change the A-M-A-N to A-M-E-N. It's actually a request. Let it be so. Let everything that I just said be so or that idea really of strength or sureness, stability, solidity is what it's in, is involved with this idea of aman, which is the word translated faith or belief. So when you think of faith, when you think of believe, I hope that the first image, the first concept that comes to your mind is that of strength. There is strength in this stage on which I stand. I wasn't nervous at all about ascending those three steps because having done it many times and having known the solidity on which I stand, I can rely and depend upon it. 
So check that out. The idea of checking something out, considering it based on its strength, is how we then place our dependability or reliability on that thing. So to have faith or to believe is to consider something or someone dependable or reliable based on its perceived strength, sureness, or soness. And that's an important concept because that idea is going to be found throughout the Word of God. Let me show you some examples of of how the Old Testament, and then we'll take a look at the New Testament, how the Old Testament uses this word normally translated faith or believe, this Hebrew word aman, as we've seen in Genesis 15, Abram amand in the Lord, if you'll allow. He considered his word dependable and sure, and he relied upon it, and it was granted to him as righteousness. Paul will quote from Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith, thus signifying in both covenants, both testaments, the importance of faith. We enter the Christian life by faith, and then it becomes the operative principle by which we conduct our life with God. It is how we grow in Him as we grow in our understanding of Him and our ever-increasing reliance upon Him. Truth is one of the ways this word is translated. The same author, Moses, who wrote Genesis 15, also wrote Exodus 18, used aman in both cases. English translators properly used the word for truth there in Exodus 18, where Moses was commanded to select men of truth who could help him administrate Israel during that time. Truth is that which is reliable, sure. It does not vary. It's dependable. It's two plus two is always four and we can count on it. And that idea of truth thus is behind this term as well. Now here's a couple of interesting ones. Naomi was, was uh, the boy's um, nurse in Ruth chapter four. The New American Standard Bible translates this word aman in the noun form as nurse. Why? Because a nurse in Hebrew thought is one who is, can be so relied upon, is so dependable, so sure in their care for an infant. All an English author writer did is simply say that Hebrew idea is what we call a nurse. But what is consistent between belief and faith and truth and nurse is that of strength, of stability, of sureness, of able to be counted upon. Now, my favorite is this one in 2 Kings 18. It's translated there as a doorpost, but I bet you can see it now. In all five of these incidences, there's some evidence of strength, of stability. And what's going on in 2 Kings 18 is, is sort of ridiculous, by the way. The, the king of Assyria has come a-calling on King Hezekiah of Judah because Hezekiah has not paid off his tribute to the king of Assyria. Hezekiah shouldn't have been in this deal anyway, but he was, and he was supposed to pay this king tribute for protecting him. He wasn't trusting in the Lord to protect him. He was rather paying a pagan king. And Hezekiah was running out of money. And so he went to the doors of the temple and stripped off the gold that had been laid inside the, in those doors and also went to the doorpost to, to strip out the gold and pay the king of Assyria. Some tough times in Israel's history. But the term is used there to describe what we might call a door jam or a door frame, or maybe better as seen here, a pillar. That which is strong, that which supports the wall and the roof above. If you were on a tour, your guide might say, well, let's, let's go to these ruins. I actually argue that what you're seeing is not ruined. 
what you're seeing is still that which remains. The strong, stable thing is what remained. Everything else has been ruined. And so that image of, that a pillar gives us of strength and stability is that same thought behind the word faith or believe. The New Testament brings these same concepts over very equally. In fact, as we see, as we wrap up our Old Testament ideas, this idea of strength and sureness, reliability, dependability is seen consistently as the concept of that word. The New Testament does the same thing. It brings those thoughts over, first of all, by quoting those Old Testament verses. Genesis 15, 6 is quoted by Paul in the book of Romans, specifically chapter 4. Paul also quotes in Romans from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And we see this idea in Greek having the same mindset, the same concept. The Greek language, the verb is pistuo, the noun is pistis. And we see it used in a a few kinds of ways in which we'd be most familiar. Of course, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him, whoever considers him and his word to be strong and reliable and sure, and then places the attendant reliability or dependability on that information on that person, shall have everlasting life. Same term in, in Galatians 2 where Paul was entrusted with the uh, ministry to the, to the Gentiles and his apostleship. We'll see that the term in Hebrews 11, as Johnny read, is most important. There's a couple of aspects in Hebrews 11 that I thought was worth bringing out. First of all, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And secondly, the conviction of things not seen. Even in our language, it's supported. That idea of assurance at the root of it is the thought of that which is sure. Builders want things to be true, that is plumb and sure, uh, immovable. I used to work with a, a framer from Alabama and he'd, he'd tack things together and shoot nails all in it. And he'd say, that ain't going anywhere. It wouldn't move. And because it was sure and firm and strong, it was immovable. And those of us that were around that construction project became convinced, it's actually a legal term here, convinced based on that proof that it was a sure thing. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we see all of these usages also supporting the same idea that we saw in the Old Testament, that faith is that concept of perceived and recognized strength, stability, sureness, solidity. And thus, because we sized it up for its sureness, its strength, its stability, we can rely and depend upon it. As we, uh, as we continue, I wanted to show a couple of examples of that faith throughout the scriptures is evaluated. And not just the faith in which we enter into the Christian life, although it becomes the entree point, does it not? By faith in Christ, one comes to be declared righteous before the Lord. But for believers, we have many examples of both, unfortunately, weak and little faith, as well as examples of great faith. And that's sort of how the case studies in our lessons in faith are going to be divided. We'll see examples of individuals, righteous individuals going to heaven who have struggled with their faith. And we'll see examples of those uh, characters that are pronounced of having great faith and hopefully draw not to follow after the little or weak faither and to follow hard after those 
of great faith. Let's start with those that are of, uh, that we see that of little or uh, weak faith. Unfortunately, um, God does not um, dismiss even the heroes of the faith from his evaluation of them. Uh, We see David in all his glory and all of his weaknesses. And here we see Moses in many times in all of his glory, but here at really the low point of his life of faith where he is dismissed from allowing entree into the land. This is the point where both Moses and Aaron will not be allowed to enter the land because they did not believe in the Lord. What's going on here is that Moses, who's been leading the people all the way through the Red Sea experience, he saw all the, the, the miracles, including the Red Sea. He went down and, and got the, the tabernacle built. He gave them the Levitical laws. He counted them up for war, thus the name, the book of Numbers. And they began this 11-day journey from, from the tip, from the lower point of Mount Sinai to the southern end of the land of Israel. This 11-day journey, Deuteronomy tells us, and it was not until the 40th year that they entered the land. What happened on that 11-day campout was not only the leaders, but all the people were so weak and poor in their faith that God set them aside, not a heaven and hell type of setting aside, but rather a loss of reward, a loss of inheritance type of discipline, and raised up that next generation of Joshua and Caleb, a generation of faith. And so it's a tough thing to see. And one of the things I love most about the scripture is that God doesn't dismiss when the good guys do things wrong. It tells us the truth when David messes up. It shows us the reality of both, in this case, Moses and Aaron not following the correct path. Moses was instructed to speak to the rock and water would come forth from it in his anger, in his desperation. At the end of his rope, we might say, he struck the rock not once but twice. Water did come out, by the way, God ever gracious. But then the Lord sort of said, come here, Moses, come here, Aaron, because you've been granted much over many, you're going to have to be disciplined in front of everyone and hard. And so God will say to Moses, because you have not believed me, To treat me as holy in the sight of the Lord, you shall not bring this people into the land which I had given them. A hard lesson for him to learn as he stood on the steeps of Moab and watched years later Joshua and Caleb take the people into the land. He was not allowed to do that. Why? Because of the weakness of his faith at that time. A righteous man, no one's ever preached that Moses is not in heaven, but on the journey he stumbled. And we have to take and we take a look at it here in the book of Numbers. Paul warns us in his final document in the New Testament of the same kind of thing of others around him who have not done so well, that have begun the journey yet not finished well. He says to Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight. Keep faith and a good conscience, which some that is faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and as a result suffered shipwreck. In regard to their faith, he gives a metaphor, obviously, of a of a ship at sea. And the parallel is, is our life of faith having begun well, but then come upon a reef of disbelief and to be shipwrecked in your faith is something that Paul had seen around him by believers, by righteous individuals. Yet they did not finish well. Faith, that operative principle of our life must be nourished and nurtured, expanded, ever growing. 
and the principles uh, that we'll see here in a moment will hopefully help in that area. There's one other little phrase, and th- those of you that grew up on the King James Bible, this one comes out very powerfully there, O ye men of little faith. This was the evaluation every time of Jesus for the faith life of the disciples, the faith life of the apostles. Never once did they hear its opposite. We're going to see a couple that did hear the opposite words. They, every time their faith was evaluated, and here's are the times it was evaluated, they heard that little stinging phrase, O ye men of little faith. Even when Peter was walking on the water and began to doubt and he began to sink, Jesus used the term to him, you little faither. In fact, that's exactly what the word is. It's one word in Greek. In English, O ye men of little faith. You have a little time to kind of for the hammer to drop, you know, but, but in the Greek language, it's little faither. And it would have been harsh and rebuking and, and tough to take. Oligopistoi is what he would have said. And it would have been difficult to hear. Even the disciples struggled with their faith. And as a result, we see the importance of following after those that indeed have great faith. And there are two characters that I'll spend the rest of our time focusing upon. They're found in Matthew's gospel. And if you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8, we can meet our first character. Uh, he is an interesting man. Uh, and because he's, and both of these characters are found in Matthew's gospel, it's worth noting the background of Matthew. Matthew is by far uh, the most Jewish of all the Gospels. It is written by a Jew to Jews to convince Jews that Jesus was their long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And that's why it begins with the genealogy. We sort of go, what a horrible way to begin a book, man. Talk about losing interest immediately. But if you're going to be the proper king of Israel, you've got to be connected correctly. And you have to come through David, and we're going to see the importance of that. Not just through Abraham, not just Isaac, not just Jacob, not just through Judah, but through David. And so that's the purpose of Matthew, is to present this highly Jewish presentation of the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. The irony of the book is that the only two people to whom Jesus Christ ever said, you have great faith, are two Gentiles. The greatest of ironies, if you're a good Hebrew boy who's following after the Lord on this three or four year camp out, all you're hearing is little faither. And they are going to see in these two incidences that we're going to peruse here over the next few moments, two people to whom Jesus Christ said, you have great faith. Never once did the apostles hear those words. Ever, no one else is recorded in the scripture as having heard those words from the Lord himself you have great faith, except these two Gentiles. The first one is a Roman centurion. Let me tell you a little bit about this fellow. I have a rare archaeological photograph of him here uh, on his day off. He, he's a Gentile. He comes from a pagan background. Uh, certainly his country was idolatrous and uh, believed Caesar to be a form of God. He is a professional soldier He is an enemy of Israel. He's been sent there in this land that he would know as Philistia, named after the Philistines, to watch over this unruly religious group called the Jews. Uh, He uh, was a key member of the Roman army. At that time, the Roman army was divided into legions, and there were 6,000 guys in a legion. Now, to further divide the legion of 6,000, there were 60 
units of 100. A unit of 100 was called a century. This guy is over one of those units of 100. Be similar to a, roughly a company in, in our understanding of, of how armies are divided today. And he is uh, this crucial member of this key Lego piece of the Roman army. It was the century, those hundred guys that were moved to provide offense and defense and flanking maneuvers. He is crucial and he is sent around the world for Rome's glory. He's been sent to this little uh, outpost, uh, not a very attractive place in his mind as he would have traveled most of the world. Uh, Israel is not the most beautiful places in some parts of it. And he's sent to the northern area, most likely the Roman garrison stationed at Capernaum. Now, it's also, as it would, the northern campaign headquarters of Jesus Christ was in Capernaum. Peter's mother-in-law lived there. Kefer Nehum in Hebrew, the village of Nehum of the Old Testament, was a, a lake port, it's a fishing uh, merchant type of place, and it was a vibrant city, and he would have been there for putting down civil unrest, guarding those that were meeting in meetings like this, by the way, but primarily to make sure that the, the two main roads that went north and south through Israel were open. For Israel, among all of its things, is a key land bridge between Europe, Asia, and Africa. See, to the west of of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea, and sea travel was slow and uh, laborious. And to the right of Israel, or to the east, is a desert. So you had to go through this little strip about the size of our state of Vermont, and the importance of Rome to keep it open so that travel and wool armies could pass through to both Africa and over to Asia was crucial. And so this Roman centurion, he comes on the scene and he is a man's man. He is a warrior. He is skilled in the art and savagery of war. And he lives in a world of rank, of order, of discipline, and most of all, authority. Those are his everyday lubricants of his life. It's routine for him, as we will see, to live in that world. So after Jesus has finished the Sermon on the Mount, he cleanses a Jewish leper. One time I was preaching this and I said he cleansed the Jewish leopard and people were convinced that do animals come in Jew and Gentile? And I didn't get that group back at all. So Jewish leper. And then in keeping with to the Jew first and then the Gentile, he then encounters a Gentile. This Roman centurion, this guy who's over a hundred men. And he enters into Capernaum and the centurion came to Jesus saying, Lord, my servant or my son, there is a textual difficulty here. In either case, he's concerned about someone who is lying paralyzed at home and suffering in great pain. Now, I don't want to read into this passage, but there's there seems to be a military dispatch to this uh, to this discourse here, to this conversation Uh, This is someone of lower rank presenting a request to someone of higher rank and then getting an immediate answer. It's none of this, let's sit down and chat about it. It's, here's my request. I have this servant. He's at home, somewhat 20 to 25 miles away, we learn from Luke's gospel, by the way. And he is suffering great pain. And there's nothing in between his statement and the Lord's response. I will come and heal him. Now, to be a great faither, you've got to get in the mind of that individual right now. What is he thinking? Because great faithers think differently about the Lord as opposed to how little faithers think. This great faither recognized the one I've asked to help 
whom I believe can help, has said, I will come and help. My servant is 20, 25 miles away. I don't know if, about you. I'm calling a cab. I'm getting a horse, a chariot or something. Let's go. Because I'm convinced that I need his presence there to take care of the problem. Great faithers think differently than that. In essence, the centurion said no. He said no for two reasons. From a military perspective, it was not right for someone of Jesus' rank, and certainly the centurion had recognized the high rank value of the Lord. It was not right for someone of Jesus' rank to come into the home of a lowly centurion. It's equivalent of a five-star general coming into the, into the, the home of, of a sergeant or a lieutenant. You just don't do it. It's not necessary. The one with the, with the five stars can tell things uh, to get done and they get done. And notice his mindset. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Hey, buddy, don't you know your servant's 25 miles away? Don't you need him physically there? No. He recognized the Lord as so differently as everyone else did. He just said, you just need to say the word and my servant will be healed. And then he gives us the insight. We see how he thinks. The centurion says, for I too am a man under authority. I live in a world of authority too. He's told what to do and he tells others what to do it. And he so explains. I tell this guy come and he comes. I tell that one go and he goes. I say this one do that and he does it. He doesn't even say please sometimes. He just tells people what to do. He's used to it. And Jesus recognizing that he has seen into the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one on whom all authority now rests, responds this way. Jesus said, and he marveled. It's the only time you'll see that word describing Jesus' response to someone. He marveled at this individual and his insight into his person. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. The apostles were there. The disciples were right there. I don't know that it happened, but I'll bet all the money in my pockets to all the money in your pockets that when Jesus said, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel, when he stepped on Israel's word, he looked over at the apostles. I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. It would have been stinging. It would have been tough to watch. The Hebrew guys didn't get it right. This, this centurion from Rome came and had insight into the person of Jesus Christ that they didn't have. And as a result, we'll see that the, the, the centurion's request was taken care of and his servant was healed that very hour. What makes great faith? What can we extract from our little encounter with the Roman centurion? We can at least learn that recognition and dependence upon the authority of Jesus Christ is key, is crucial to having a great faith. You see, great faithers see God the way he really is. They don't make him up the way we want to make him up. They don't reduce him lower than what he really is as seen in the scripture. They respond to him in accord with the way that he really is. Or restated, we see, by the way, the importance of authority. I'm sorry about this. I should have dropped that one in. The importance of authority in Matthew's gospel is noteworthy. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there was a little editorial statement by Matthew that Jesus was speaking as one having authority. Just nine or ten verses later, the Roman centurion says, I know who you are. You're one of great authority. Sort of a, it takes one to know one. I have authority. I recognize your great authority. But most importantly, the most famous verse in the whole book of Matthew, we used to have a banner of it right over here, go and make disciples, was preceded by 
the little phrase, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Centurion understood that. He knew with whom he was dealing. And he adjusted his faith capacity, his faith muscle, if you will, according to whom he was dealing. And so we see that principle come forth that Christians whose faith is great recognize Jesus Christ as the all-authoritative Lord that he really is and depend on him accordingly. Now, just a few chapters later, we're going to see another great faither. She's found in Matthew chapter 15, if you want to turn over to Matthew 15 for a second, and we'll meet the Canaanite woman. This, uh, this lady, unlike the Roman centurion, is going to have an insight into a different aspect of the Lord's being. And even more hated than a Roman centurion would have been a Canaanite to a good God-fearing Jew. Let me tell you a little bit about this gal. Uh, she is also a Gentile and represents Canaan, the long-standing enemy of Israel. She is a descendant of Canaan who was cursed, the only race in the whole Bible ever cursed, in Genesis chapter 9 as Noah foresaw the grotesque debauchery that Canaan would bring forth. Her cousins include the Hittites and the Jebusites, the Amorites, and those that were present at Sodom and Gomorrah. She lives in what is known today as southern Lebanon, in the district of Tyre and Sidon. Sidon was the firstborn of Canaan and thus so named. For the only time in the ministry of Jesus Christ, he and the boys have left Israel and have now gone into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So it's not unusual to come across a Canaanite. What's just happened as Matthew unfolds is important because John the Baptist has just been beheaded. And I think the Lord is taking the guys away for a little R&R, but what we're going to learn, there's No vacation with the Lord. He's always instructing. He's always teaching. And he's going to do it through this Canaanite woman. She is one who would have sent chills up and down the back of good God-fearing Jews. They knew exactly who she was based on the geography and her ethnicity. And she's got four things going against her that those that lived in Israel, unfortunately, might have bought into as bad things. First of all, she was a woman. Nowhere uh, did the Pharisees ever go did they lower the rights of women. Wherever Christ went, the women's rights were increased. But the Jews of that day would have been taught that women were not as important as men. She's a Canaanite. She has a daughter. And then, just to put a little cherry on top, the daughter has a demon. Any one of those four things would have been dismissed her, would have dismissed her as having one that we want to have ministry to. She's got all four uh, going for her. Her ancient kin would have been the ruination of Israel. Joshua never removed them. David had to deal with them. Solomon, David's son, married Canaanite wives, and they brought their grotesque religious practices into the temple itself, and it became the erosion of Israel and the dividing of the kingdom. They know who she is, and they are repulsed by her. And so we're going to see this almost this comedic scene unfold, where there's the disciples... The Canaanite woman and the Lord. And this little trilogy of characters, I think, is most interesting, where we see that Jesus withdraws from Palestine, goes into the district of Tyre and Sidon, and beholds this Canaanite woman came from that region, crying out, saying, have mercy on me. Notice two things that she'll call him, O Lord, son of David. 
The centurion had called him Lord also. It could have been the term for, as in, Lord Jesus Christ. But the same word could be used to describe what we might say, sir, someone, a term of respect. But there's no question what the next phrase is, son of David. She knew precisely who he was. Matthew began his gospel in Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You had to be properly related to David. And so he listed David even before Abraham. Although Abraham was born prior to David, the lineage of David was key. And we're learning from this lady that she knows exactly with whom she is dealing. Have mercy on me, O son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, the Lord, ever the master teacher, he doesn't always provide the solution. Sometimes he just lets the characters express themselves fully. I'm convinced he's drawing both groups out, both the apostles and the Canaanite woman. The verbs are interesting here, by the way. They're in the imperfect tense, many of them, meaning that the action is never completed. She keeps on calling out and the disciples will keep on asking her to be sent away. And so we see he, uh, he did not answer her a word and the disciples came to him and kept asking him, Lord, send her away. <laughs> She's shouting out after us. We're on vacation, Jesus. Who is this Canaanite woman whose daughter has a demon? Why are you allowing her to come in our presence? There's not always a time for ministry, is there, Lord? And the Lord just says, let's see what happens here, boys. And he did not answer. And finally he does. And he speaks to her. Tries to clarify his mission. He's not trying to rebuke her or move her away. He's trying to clarify and teach both parties. I was sent primarily to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To the Jew first and then the Greek. She doesn't know what to say to that. She just comes back and says, Lord, help me. Now now the scene is going to change. He's going to try a different approach. It's similar to what he's just said. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But now he's going to say, look, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In any culture, anywhere, at any time, it's never been okay for, for a meal to be prepared and the whole family to come around the table, everybody sitting down, and the little dogs who might come under the table who normally feed on crumbs. It's never okay to take a children's plate and give that to the dogs. It's just, it's, it ain't fitting, as we used to say. We just don't do that. And that's the image that he's saying. It's, we don't give the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's not calling her a dog. In fact, he uses the word for a little dog. We get our word canine from this word. He's just describing a scene with which we're all familiar. The little dog waiting patiently for the crumb to fall off the bread loaf and eat it, and she responds accordingly. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. See, she's she's not saying, "I I want the children's plate. She's not saying... I'd like a seat at the table. I understand you were sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But I understood that you baked this bread. And if a little bit of that bread that would fall off a small child's plate was to happen on the ground, could I have that instead of a dog? For she recognized the great sufficiency of the Lord's preparation. Now, he doesn't give us his crumbs. It's a ridiculous illustration to make the point. But I think we get it, and certainly he did as well. Oh, woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. We see also another insight that great faithers have is they have recognition and dependence upon the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The centurion 
leaves behind the principle of his great authority, and she teaches us that he's all-sufficient. It's just a fancy word for he's enough. His, his crumb is more than I could ever need, and yet he allows me to sit at his table. He prepares a table for me in the presence of mine enemies in Psalm 23. It's a wonderful, gracious relationship we have. But don't forget, he is enough. And all the things that at times that we do to clamor after more and more, and if I just read this book and went to that seminar, had that idea, then I'd really get it. He's saying, I am enough, and I am recorded in the Word of God. Let's eat upon that food. And the principle that we can extract, obviously, is that Christians whose faith is great recognize Jesus Christ as the sufficient Lord that He really is and depend upon Him accordingly. Now, This little photo haunts me, quite frankly. Um, Some of you that know me know that in the last 10 or so years, I've developed vertigo, a fear of heights. I'm doing okay up here, but I would not be doing okay there. And I'm going to go ahead and assume that a few others might have the same problem, even if you don't have vertigo. This is the RCA building in 1932 being built, New York City. If you know the city, that's Central Park up behind them in the Upper West Side to the left. And these are iron workers on a lunch break, 808 feet above the ground. This guy over here is reading the newspapers. This guy here is uh, reading that guy's paper. This guy's getting a light or a cigarette. I don't advocate smoking. I'm just describing what's happening in the, in the scene. And they're completely relaxed. Completely relaxed. This next picture is even more ridiculous, in my opinion. I've heard that it was staged. I don't care. <laughs> they didn't have Photoshop. They certainly didn't have OSHA back then. But this guy's foot's hanging over. If one of them moved, the other three would fall. 808 feet. Why could they, how could it be that they could rest so comfortably? Because every day they had dealt with that iron. Every day they had dealt with that steel. They stood on the structure that was below them and they knew it was firm and strong and steady. They themselves had cranked in the bolts into those corners and they knew it wasn't going anywhere. It was strong and firm and sure. And it's really a beautiful picture from 1932 of the Christian life. That as we recognize the strong, stable stability of the Lord, we can rest in Him. He's got us. We're not going to fall. And the beauty of that is the main principle that the centurion and the Canaanite woman have taught us. The reality of things, of course, as the apostles will say, and finally in recognizing uh, their situation, at the end of the ministry of Christ, they finally say, Lord, increase our faith. Uh, the, the, the father in Mark 9 had said, Lord, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. Those principles are found throughout the scripture. They're real. People of faith can struggle with faith. We've seen Moses. We've seen Paul warn against it. We saw the disciples receive the stinging rebuke. And we've seen a couple examples of great faithers and the principles that they leave us with. To be reminded of the great heaven and earth authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he is sufficient. His sufficiency is enough for us. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to come around and speak of these things, to be encouraged by you from the word of God. Uh, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is now coming to a realization that they don't know the Lord, they've never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for sins and rose from the dead, may they rest upon the sureness of 
Genesis 15, 6, just like Abraham who believed in the Lord and it was given him as righteousness, anyone can leave here today having a right standing with God and coming to realize that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead. By the simple act of faith in that sure and reliable person and his sure and reliable testimony, we can leave here today knowing that we are eternally right in good standing with you, Lord. For those of us that are walking the walk and have been on the path a while, Lord, it would be less than honest to, uh, for any of us to stand up here and say, well, I've always done it right, never struggled once. It's just not true. Lord, we struggle. We take our eyes off you. We fail to remember basic principles about you. I pray that this week might, we might have a simple uh, duty to uh, ponder upon the persons of the Roman centurion and the Canaanite woman to recognize you as one of all authority and all sufficiency. I thank you, Lord, for each one here, the privilege we have to serve together. And let this year, Lord, be marked by faith in you, ever increasing, ever growing. For indeed, we ask, increase our faith, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week of great faith. I just came up with that right then. Oh. <laughs>